0: Let Me Tell You a Story, Podcast 27.
1: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times.
0: Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom Some years it ago. Was the age of wisdom. Never mind how long It is a truth
1: universally known. Christmas has been a little Christmas
2: You don't know about you know. me without you...
1: Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hey, this is
2: Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We'll begin this podcast with Steve reading another Samuel Cronin short story with the simple title, The Lantern.
0: Solinger dug the nugget from the claim and held it to the lantern with a ghostly fear he'd found the motherlode. The nugget was small, but as he turned it with his fingers, with the glow bathing it, it seemed larger, much larger. His eyes widened with the burning hope of discovery. Just as his confidence peaked, however, the oil in the lantern ran out. The glow diminished as darkness swallowed him. He dropped the nugget, and reached for matches, and in his blindness kicked over the pickaxe, which smashed the lantern. Staring for several minutes at the spot from where the light had vanished, a palpable fear enveloped him. The heavy breathing, the heavy weight of the breathing, the mind fearful and close, and the breathing and the sweat mixed with the damp air, the heavy breathing and the alarm. He remembered he had failed to bring matches, believing the lantern would stay lit. He thought of them and the spare lantern and Ben under the white tent in the shade from the intense sun. He extended fingers shakily for the side of the mine, but felt nothing. His heart beat so fast it seemed his chest had burst, like the lantern. Out of panic, he stepped forward to support himself with the side of the tunnel and smacked his head against a low-hanging rock. Blood flowed profusely. When he reached to stop the blood, he poked himself in the eye, scratching the lens. The intense sting doubled him over. As he fell, he struck his forehead against the side of the mine. Terror entered him. His heart pounded. His body weakened. He tried to breathe. The death that comes to all prospectors when they've reached the limit of their claim and have nothing for sh- to show for it except a blind lead, and the knowledge that the life thus far has been proven fruitless, shattered him. He dropped to knees. Spreading hands into the dirt, he searched for the pieces of the shattered glass, hoping to somehow bond them together and resurrect the light. Instead, he found the gold. He recognized it instantly from the field. The warm nugget smoothly bonded with his palm almost perfectly. It seemed destined for for his fist. Whether he made it out of the tunnel felt oddly moot. Just at that moment, compared to the startling discovery that the gold he so desired, even in infancy, had found him. The perfect strike, ruining him at last. With the nugget secure in his pocket, he searched for the lantern. The darkness pressed against him, and he weakened, and the heavy breathing increased, and he sifted through the dirt and found nothing. Ben, he whispered. "'I think I found the gold.' But the darkness consumed the words. The fear of the gold drained him. The fear drained his will to make it out of the tunnel alive. He tried to blink the fear away, but with the tunnel so deeply buried under the mountain, the only hope of his vision returning would be to restore the lantern, which he had smashed, or find a way back through the tunnel to its entrance through the perfect darkness.' The prospectors who abandoned the tunnel before Sollinger and Ben had reclaimed it had dug several false leads from the main tunnel as they pursued one glittering load after another. Finding the true passage would be difficult. Even with the lantern, it wasn't easy. But who needs a lantern when you can get out of the mine with your hands? When you just inch along, feeling a little, breathing a little, following the air. You can press through it until the light grabs you finally, and guides you out. And once past the collar, you just grab another lantern anywhere and return for the gold. You can buy all the light you want and return to the darkness and mine the dream. And there is no darkness greater than the will of a man who believes the light is meant to shine on his burning hope, the dream of his youth, his motherload. No darkness greater than his desire to carry in his hand the promise of the find into camp and show them proof of the claim and guide them into the darkness with every man carrying his lantern until they mine the wealth. Nine months ago, on the day they took over the vacated claim, they celebrated at the tavern. Selinger boasting like a multi-millionaire, he turned Oregon upside down with the find of all finds, even as he begged the bartender for a drink. The bartender questioned him about his lantern. It's not a lantern to go into the mine, son. You need a mining lantern, a durable lantern. Your lantern will break before you know it. It's too fragile. He picked up the lantern and felt its weight. It needs something heavy. some uh, made of solid brass with a, per- a protected chimney. His lantern was too much glass. It won't burn worth a darn. He set the lantern before him. Sollinger's face turned to dismay. The roundest cheeks and small eyes drew inward. The eyebrows darkened. Now look, son, not everyone finds the gold. Not everyone's that lucky. It's down there, but only... Uh, listen, it takes experience and a great amount of luck. I'm just telling you as a friend. Late that afternoon, he and Ben rode their buckskins up the draw to prepare for the digging. Early the next morning, Solinger lit the lantern and went all the way to the end. In the nine months since, he had advanced the tunnel only five feet... In all his boasting, he had found that his two hundred pounds of glittering mica fetched such ridicule in town that his name had become a thing of embarrassment. He reached for the side of the mine, but felt air and stretched his hand forward into nothing. His forehead banged against a side rock and he screamed. Little dirt fell on him. His heart raced. A long silence. He breathed heavily and ran his hands through the dirt and waited for the silence. Lowering farther, he said, I busted the lantern. I'm sorry I busted the lantern. And struck a rock with his kneecap and whimpered. I ain't never gonna bust a lantern again. But that's what you said last time, and the time before. You don't really want to live in the light, do you, Sollinger?" No, I don't really want to live in the light. The tunnel narrowed, and he tried to push through, but the protruding rock dug in his skin. Unable to stand, he couldn't in sideways the way he had with the lantern. He pushed harder, but couldn't budge. A little dirt fell on his neck. His heart pounded. Ben! The tunnel shook. Suddenly a roar overwhelmed him as rock and dirt covered his body. Then the roaring ceased. The lantern cost him everything when he bought it hitching a ride with the family on a Conestoga from Chicago. He rode the whole way in the back, eyeing it. When they let him and Ben off, he traded the last of his cash, convincing the father he needed it more than they. Why? What you got planned? I'm a miner. It ain't a mining lantern. It don't matter what kind of lantern it is. I'm a gonna find the gold. He shoved his hands in his pockets and looked at the mother. When I find it, I'll bring it back. Ain't no gold in those parts. The mother looked pleadingly at the father. Hank, we need the money. Can always buy another lantern. How we gonna see? Campfire. The father looked from her to his boy and girl and then to Solinger. You gonna treat it well? Yeah, heck, I'm gonna treat it well. We need the money for Pendleton. We can get things, said the mother. The children looked at their dirtied feet. The father peered at the setting sun. You're going to take care of it, though? Yeah, like it's my child. The father wedged his foot in the spoke and draped his forearm, forearm over thigh and squeezed his fist weakly. It ain't a rich man's lantern, he said. I spent everything I had getting it. You treat it well. And he scratched his mustache and the eyes became keen and searching as he looked deeper into Solinger. You know something, he said, I don't say this usually. In fact, I've never said it. But there's something about you. It's down there somewhere. You'll find it. You'll find the gold. I can see it in your eyes. He watched the sun die beneath the hills. The lantern, with its shattered chimney, lay somewhere behind him. He groped for it, but touched fallen rock. Dirt covered his hair and forearms, and small chunks of rock lay on his back and buttocks. He tried to swipe the dirt out of his eyes and breathe, but the dirt was thick, and he lowered his mouth to the ground. Ben, you there? The stifling coffin constricted him. When he tried to inch forward, intense pain shot from his leg. He clenched his teeth and his fingers clawed dirt. Tears swelled in his eyes. Come here, old Ben. Come on now. He felt his lungs weakening. It's good to rest a while, Ben. It's good to settle settle in a little, he said, laid his head down. Ben? He said weakly. I can move a little further toward you. He closed, his eyes closed, and he listened to his lungs weakening as he struggled for fresh air, trying to recall that morning. Sunlight struck the tent flap as it rose over pine trees. The light touched Solinger's eyelids, and the lashes flickered. He pulled a wool blanket over his face. Solinger, soup's on, came Ben's voice from outside. The fire was crackling and the bacon sizzling. Got pancakes and coffee. Got bacon. Sollinger groaned. Tired of prospecting. And what'd you say in Maine? I'm tired of being rich. I want to go west where the real gold is and risk everything to get it. Isn't that what you said? You're not my father. I am your brother. Now this was your idea to come west, and here we are. We're in Oregon, staking and claim, just like you wanted. Gold ain't going to dig itself. You got to get it. Solinker yawning pulled up his suspenders, and stepped out of the darkness of the tent. He took two steaming cakes on a tin plate and covered them with bubbling maple syrup and hoarded them into his mouth. Wish you weren't so afraid of tunnels. We'd double our time. Ben looked at him. I'm doing my share. And he swallowed and looked at his satchel. There ain't no gold in the brook either. Oh, yes, there is. There's gold. It's in there. Yeah, well... We ain't got the money or the tools to sink a shaft the way we should. We ain't got the money to buy nothing, Sollinger. The blasting powder's just about gone. That load rocks there, Ben. You saw it. But we gotta sink a shaft to get it. Well, maybe we can go partners. You said you didn't want to go partners. Sollinger chewed. We don't know what the heck we're doing out here, Solinger. If I see an ounce more mica from that mine, I'm going to snort my own blood. You snort your own blood then. I will. It's in there, Ben. I know it is. It always is. You're very gifted in knowing that the gold is in the mountain. You're an expert. Solinger stopped chewing. He looked at him, pouring himself coffee. We can go home. Ben cupped the coffee in his palms and jostled jostled it a little. He raised it to his nose and blew the surface and jostled it. Solinger counted the the tines of his fork and looked at the heavy clouds in the west. I can't do this without you. I know you can't. Then agree it's worth searching for the gold. I agree it's worth searching. He blew and sipped. But not for gold. Sollinger looked at him harder. What's worth searching for, Ben? The light of life? He snorted. Ben, listen. Finding gold ain't all that bad. It's what you do with it that makes it bad. Finding the glow of gold is more important than the gold itself. Sollinger finished the pancakes. He set the, place, the plate near the fire, then smacked his lips. Well, he laughed, the glow of anything is more important than the gold. That's true, that's the beauty of light, but you gotta go get it. Ben looked at the satchel. He took Solinger's plate and his own, and went to the brook. You understand that pretty well, don't you? And he looked back at Solinger, who nodded. But your knowledge ain't been tested. You want the gold, you ain't no different than anybody else. Except you think gold can buy the light but light ain't for sale. Solinger followed him to the brook. How come you're always talking about selling lanterns? you always wanting to sell lanterns to people. Make them and sell them. Ben dipped the plates into the brook. As he rinsed, he said, I don't plan on making money from it. I just want to help people. He dipped a plate into the sandy bottom and scrubbed with grains to remove the syrup and grease. The sand swirled with emotion, and he lifted the plate out of the brook to examine the detritus. solinger my, my gold is in keeping you safe. If you get home alive, that's my find. He examined Solinger's eyes. His light struck the grains. solinger you there? Said Ben.
2: If you're thinking that can't possibly be the end of the story, you're correct. To give Steve's voice a rest, I'm going to read a couple selections for you, and then he'll return with the rest of The Lantern. So don't go away. First, we have an excerpt from Janet Thompson's most recent book in her Dear God series. This one is titled Dear God, He's Home, A Woman's Guide to Her Stay-at-Home Man. Janet is an author, a speaker, a leadership coach, founder of Woman-to-Woman Mentoring at Saddleback Church, and also founder of About His Work Ministries. Those of you who have been married as long as Steve and I have may relate to Janet's book more than others. However, she offers great marriage and relationship advice for all of us. Dear God, He's Home, A Woman's Guide to Her Stay-at-Home Man by Janet Thompson. Janet titled this section, We're in this together for better or worse, but not for lunch. She begins with three quotes. Wilbur Fayus, on his 80th wedding anniversary, said, It's very simple. It's give and take and compromise. He's my soulmate, said Beth. I love him now more than I ever did. Which says a lot. Those married a while understand this means going through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And from Job 41.17 in the Bible, they are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. From Janet's journal, Dear God, Dave and I have experienced many major transitions, but nothing prepared us for 24-7 life together. I thought it was understood that while Dave navigated through retirement— I keep on doing what I always did, writing and speaking. Instead, Dave acts like we're on an extended vacation or an unending weekend. We do live in the mountains now, and when we used to go to our mountain cabin in Idlewild, California, I usually prepared three meals a day and had more leisure time. But Lord, this is our home now, not a weekend getaway. Those first few days when Dave so sweetly asked if I was ready for lunch, or what was I planning for lunch, or did I want him to make me lunch? I was thinking, lunch? I don't do lunch. I eat leftovers, or grab a bite at my desk, or not. I can't stop the creative juices to eat lunch. Still, from my office, I could hear Dave come up the stairs from what we call Dave's Cave to make his lunch in the main floor kitchen, and the screen door slammed behind him on his way out to the front deck to eat. Distracted from my writing, I unconsciously and uncontrollably waited for the sound of the screen door upon his return back to the kitchen to clean up his dishes and retreat downstairs. This process took two hours. Finally, we had the discussion that something needed to change. Dave's cave is fully equipped with a kitchenette, including refrigerator, stove, microwave, sink. The works. We agreed he would prepare his lunch down in his kitchen and take the outside route to the deck or eat downstairs. When I'm not riding or can take a break, I'll join him. Phew, lunch really caught me off guard. She signs off. Can't do lunch. Janet. Another wife named Jean shares, One incident about my husband losing his job and setting up shop in her home is now very funny, but wasn't at the time. To keep things organized and coordinated, My husband still sets an alarm and carries out the same routine as when he went to the office to work. You can set your watch by his schedule. By 8 a.m., he's in the office, which is now upstairs in our home, ready to begin his day. On the first day of his new life, he bounded down the stairs at 11.30 and said with an enthusiastic smile, what's for lunch? I was in the kitchen at the time, but lunch wasn't my agenda. My mind quickly went into fast-forward and I could see the rest of my life fixing one meal after another, cooking, cooking, and cooking. I didn't respond in a positive way. Should have said, wherever you're taking me. Or possibly, this kitchen is closed for lunch. What I said was, lunch? I do lunch with my friends. Ouch. He looked crushed and I instantly knew I had mishandled this new phase of life. I'm happy to say we've worked things out and even occasionally have lunch together. We're into a smooth, flexible rhythm and in a very good place. I learned to guard my relationship and to be sensitive. Here's a mentoring moment from Janet. Before you're thinking, poor Dave, he has to stay down in Dave's cave. It's actually a fully furnished apartment, described by overnight guests as a luxurious suite. Our kids were worried when we first nicknamed it Dave's cave until they saw how lovely and spacious it is with a big TV, his desk and computer, and comfy furniture. Dave really is very happy with his own space. I could have included many more stories about stay-at-home husbands expecting lunch and their wives' shocked reactions. Peanut butter and jelly worked for the kids when they were home, and we wives usually finish leftovers on the run, or graze, or maybe go out to lunch with a friend. Now he's home and wanting lunch every day. Alice's husband sits down at the table waiting for his lunch. Priscilla said her husband, husband's retiring from his work added to her work, like making lunch. Anita's husband agreed to make his own breakfast and lunch, but he wanted dinner ready at 5 p.m., too early for her. Michelle's husband put in his order for what he wants for meals. Otherwise, complain about cleaning and straightening the house more because he's home all day during and messing it up or having more laundry since he isn't using the cleaners anymore. And the stories. And on and on the stories went. Instead of feeling resentful or overwhelmed, put into perspective issues like lunch or helping with household duties and discuss with your husband in the same way you would a major decision or planning a trip. Talk it out. Most husbands were used to eating lunch somewhere, maybe driving up to a takeout window or sitting in a restaurant and ordering or going to the lunchroom and eating the lunch you packed. They don't know how to change that pattern unless you help redirect them to making their own lunches now or going out with the guys. One husband, who went from working in an office to working out of the home, still gets in his car and drives to lunch. It was what he always did, and it feels right. I'm sure it feels right to his wife, too. Janet ends with a prayer. Lord, there are so many transitions and new areas to address. We love our husbands. Help us understand what they're going through and not make it all about us. Give us a willing, pliable attitude, and direct us in how to approach our husbands without breaking their spirits. Amen. Thank you, Janet, for sharing that excerpt with us. Sounds like a fun book. Now to switch back to fiction. We've been reading from my first novel, Winds of Wyoming. Today, uh, we'll start in the middle of chapter three and finish that chapter. Just as a little uh, background, our heroine Kate Nielsen is in a small cafe uh, called Grandma's Cafe in the small Wyoming town named Copperville. Kate scanned the lunch menu hoping to find something under $5. That would leave her a few dollars for gas. Someone spoke. Are you new in town or just passing through? After a moment, Kate realized she was the one being addressed and looked up. A neatly dressed woman about her age sat in a nearby booth, a cigarette in her left hand. Kate slid a little lower in her chair. Acutely aware of the contrast between her ponytail and travel-weary Pittsburgh Steelers T-shirt, and her neighbor's starched blouse and perfect strawberry blonde bob. The woman dipped a tiny brush into a bottle of fingernail polish and painted a reddish-orange swath across her left thumbnail. Just curious, haven't seen you in here before. She sucked at the cigarette, then pursed her coral lips to blow smoke at her thumb. I'm starting an internship near here tomorrow, Kate said, so I guess I could be classified as new in town. The redhead's stenciled eyebrows arched. Where? The Whispering Pines guest ranch. The eyebrows puckered. Do you know Michael Duncan? No, but I've talked with Laura Duncan on the phone. Kate wondered if her bare arms were naturally tanned. Seemed a bit early for sunbathing, especially in the mountains. The woman returned the brush to its container. She's Michael's mother. A look of distaste distaste crossed her face. Soon to become my mother in law. Michael and I started dating in high school. We're almost engaged, just waiting for the ring. She took a business card from the daytimer on her table and wriggled across the booth to handle it, hand it to Kate. My name is Tara Hughes. I own the copper fever gift shop up the street. Her perfume made Kate's eyes water, but she accepted the card and held out her hand. I'm Kate. Tara blew on the nails of her right hand before touching Kate's fingers with her fingertips. You may have seen my store when you drove into town. Kate nodded and sneezed. I'm also a real estate agent. My office is located in my shop, but it's best to leave a message because I'm usually out with clients. Or you can try my mobile number, but be warned. Cell phone reception is hit and miss in this boondocks valley. Can't even get it in this cafe. Makes it nearly impossible to get any work done. She slipped a lock of hair behind her ear. I deal mostly with ranches and other large land transactions. However, if you're ever in the market for a cottage, you know, something small and inexpensive, a house in sync with your income level, single bedroom, single bath, I can broker that for you. And, she looked Kate up and down, If you want to get in shape, I teach aerobics. Good way to firm up that flab. Kate thought about how hard and long she'd labored to regain her weight and health after the mess. I don't think. Phone call, Tara. The waitress was back at the counter, holding a corded phone in her hand. Oh, that's probably Michael, wondering where to meet me. Tara sashayed away, trailed by a mantle of perfumed smoke. Kate looked at the menu. If Tara Hughes had flab, it wouldn't have a chance to jiggle in those pants. The waitress returned, pencil and pad in hand. What'll it be, missy? Kate handed her the menu. I'll have a cheeseburger, please. We're fresh out of ground beef, but Albert can fry you up a buffalo burger. Bison meat is good for you, you know, 97% fat-free, high in protein and essential fatty acids, whatever those are. Okay, I'll have a buffalo cheeseburger. The bison is the Wyoming state mammal, you know. She did know that, and that bison meat was high in iron and low in cholesterol. She'd seen billboards in Iowa with pictures of grazing buffalo beneath the words, an ideal meat for those who care about their health. But right now, all she cared about was eating. Some folks prefer their meat rare, the woman prattled on, her earrings swinging, pink center and all, you know, but Harry tells Albert to cook Everything through and through. He doesn't want the health department coming down on him again. Kate chewed at her lip. Should she leave the restaurant to avoid the painful giardia she experienced after eating food from a subway trash can? A hunger pang rumbled through her abdomen. Well done. It's fine with me. Hunt fries with your burger? No, thanks. She had to keep costs down. Anything to drink? Water, please. The woman poked the pencil above her ear, grabbed the menu and strode across the linoleum to the kitchen window. Albert, get off up off your big fat behind. Her voice rose above the Beatles singing about yellow submarines. You got a first-time Pennsylvania customer here who wants a taste of your Wild West buffalo cooking. Kate felt her face flame. If she hadn't been so hungry, she would have walked out. To think she used to dream of the day she could order her own food instead of eating mass-produced meals. She grabbed the newspaper someone had left on the next table and turned her back to the door, ignoring its squeak as it opened and closed. She'd had enough interaction with the locals. She'd barely had time to read the front page headlines when a hand clasped her shoulder. She twisted, and her heart sank. Jerry Ramsey, one of Patterson's most hated correctional officers, stood next to her, leering down at her. She wrenched from his grasp. What are you doing here? He flipped a chair around and sat down facing her, his elbows on the chair back, a beer bottle swinging between his thumb and two fingers. A melancholy tune filtered through Kate's disbelief. Someone sang a butterfly's and told her not to be concerned, promised not to harm her. She crumpled the newspaper. Jerry Ramsey would do everything he could to harm her, to ruin her new life, to steal her freedom. He sneered. Just like it, Patterson. You thought you could walk out on me. But as usual, I outsmarted you. You could have driven all the way to the Pacific Ocean, but I'd still find you. She stared at his iceberg gray eyes, his rigid jaw, his greasy black hair beneath a brown western hat. Cowboy hat? She'd never seen him in one before. But then, she'd only seen him in uniform. His aftershave made her head hurt like always, and unearthed memories she'd buried long before she left Patterson. Kate clutched the table edge. Why did you follow me? Because he noisily sipped the beer, his gaze wandering from her face to her chest. You belong with me. She opened up her mouth, but he held up his hand. If you behave yourself, we'll get married and have a honeymoon with the birds and the bees and the bears in Yellowstone National Park, and we'll make us another baby. He reached for her, but she jerked her chair backward, nearly tipping it over. I never belong with you. The other patrons turned to stare. She glared at him. Get away from me and stay away. His lips twisted into a sardonic smile she knew all too well. So what are you going to do? Call the cops? Who do you think they believe? You, the jailbird, or me? The recently retired correctional officer? You liar. You are fired. The music stopped. Ramsey's eyelids narrowed. Thanks to you, slut. She jumped to her feet, fumbling through a person, trying to see beyond her anger she felt for money. She had to get away from him. But they would send her back to prison if she didn't pay for the hamburger. Singing of words and tunes, Neil Diamond's voice eased into the deathly, quiet room. Ramsey sang along, his voice soft and off-key. Jake glanced at him. His jaw had relaxed. A soft smile touched his lips. She wanted to vomit. Get back to your swamp, Ramsay. He grabbed her hand. I know you miss my lovin'. She snatched her hand away and hurried to the counter to toss her only money, a $10 bill, beside the register. She avoided eye contact with Tara, who, though she still held the phone to her ear, was as silent and watchful as everyone else in the restaurant. Kate pushed the door open. Where you go? called the waitress, but then she interrupted herself. Hey you, you can't have booze in here. Grandma's doesn't have a liquor license. Kate ran to her car and locked the door and yanked it open. She steered the Honda through the parking lot, past the waitress, standing at the doorway with a plate of food in her hands, and onto Main Street, barely missing a dog. That's when she saw the patrol car. She hit the brakes. The officer rolled by, handset at his mouth. Kate pounded the dashboard. Oh I God, why did you let him find me? She skidded the car to the side of the road. How far do I have to go to get away from Ramsey? She clenched the steering wheel. That brown truck. It had to be his. He'd followed her from the church. And before that, from Pennsylvania. And he was probably telling everyone at the cafe all about her. Her reputation would be ruined before she reached the ranch. She'd be fired before she started. She should keep driving, maybe go to... Kate stopped. This is not a time for panic. She lowered the window. This is my life now, my life. She was so tired of running, running from foster homes, social services, boyfriends, pimps, break-ins, police. And now, Ramsey, she took a breath. Ramsay no longer has control over me. Another breath. he will not drag me into a cesspool again. Breathe. Breathe. She dried her cheeks with the bottom of her shirt and opened the glove box to retrieve the directions to the ranch. She hadn't driven all the way to Wyoming to abandon her education. She had to complete the marketing internship. But this wasn't what she'd envisioned. In fact, it was a stinking lousy way to live her dream. Solinger,
0: you there? You there? said Ben. Sollinger's eyes flickered with the approaching glow of a lantern. That you, Ben? I thought the mountain fell on top of me. It did. You all right? As Ben neared, terror shone in his eyes. It's going to be okay, said Sollinger. Ben's hand shook violently, holding the lantern. We got to get you out of here. Calm down, Ben. It's all right. I hate this tunnel already. Don't see how you can labor under here alone. His eyes widened against the rocks protruding from the narrow sides and hanging from the low ceiling. Rather be panning right now. The Solinger half smiled, but his smile ceased when he followed Ben's eyes to a severe gash on his lower leg and the flowing blood. We gotta get you out of here. Solinger calm down, Ben. Just calm down. He removed his belt and applied a tourniquet to the thigh. Solinger grunted. Can you walk? said Ben. You gotta dig me out before I can walk. You better be able to crawl at least. I ain't packing you out. You're too dang heavy. Sollinger half snorted. Ben removed the rocks from the back and dug out some of the leg. Why didn't you come get me when it happened? Ben looked at him quickly just let me help you out this is killing you ain't it being down here in this mine he grabbed solinger by the armpits and braced his boots on either side of the narrow narrowing and pulled solinger yelped at the pain darn it ben go easy ben pulled again suddenly the tunnel shook solinger covered his head ben dove to protect solinger before he could lunge a rock struck him when the dust cleared, he lay on the ground, body limp. A mound of earth now blocked the way out. Sollinger shook his arm. Hey, Ben, you all right? The lantern paled with the lack of oxygen. He held it to Ben's face, the thin eyebrows, smooth chin, the boyish exuberance now at rest. He shook him again. Ben, come on now. He felt around for a pulse Hey Ben, he said, slapping the cheek, you gotta dig me out. He jiggled a hand, lifted the arm, pushed the shoulder. The corpse did not respond to his touch. He sighed. The lantern waned almost to nothing. He studied it with eyes blurred from shock and with a dopey mind lumbering against the flame. To escape, he needed to dig his legs out of the rock, then dig out the pickaxe and use it to dig out a passage through. Then he needed to pull Ben all the way to the entrance. Several hundred feet away while holding onto the lantern, his leg hurt tremendously. When he twisted on his hip, his calf wrenched. Pain ripped through him. He shoved knuckles into teeth to keep from screaming. Reaching blindly behind him, he clawed at the rock and earth that had buried his good leg. Once the leg was free, he used the foot to push the rock off the injured calf. The breathing. The heavy weight of the breathing. Then he gripped both sides of the narrow and pulled himself free from the fallen earth behind. The lantern flickered dismally. In the glow, he dug for the pickaxe transferring earth onto Ben. When he found it, He used it for support as he stood upright. The injured leg was useless, and he leaned on the good leg as he struck at the earth. The point hit without force. The breathing. The dampened breathing. The breathing of the lantern. Dropping the pickaxe from loss of strength, he fell to his knees and palms. Some coffin, eh, brother? I'm sorry. Should have let you... The head dropped, the eyes closed. He readied to lower to the ground next to Ben. But as the head drooped, the glow of the lantern brightened just enough to impress upon his eyelids a warm movement of light. His eyes shot open. The the lashes flickered with a whisper of oxygen passing through the impasse. With the strength left in him, he clawed at the rock and earth, transferring the the detritus onto Ben. Eventually, a mound had buried him. For a long time, he stared at Ben's heel protruding from the earth. Since their parents had died in the fire seventeen years ago, they had never spent a day apart. Tears flushed down his cheeks. But as he stared, the glow of the lantern diminished. The darkness again consumed him. The stillness, the heavy stillness, the terror, the hysteria. His heart beat fast. He grit his teeth. To honor Ben's death, he had to make it out. Blindly, he dug over the impasse, struggling to displace the earth. After 45 minutes, he made it through. With the pickaxe as a crutch, he limped along, the rush of air filling his lungs. All at once, before his eyes adjusted, he arrived at the entrance as he stepped out from under the adit collar. Natural light slammed into him with such powerful he collapsed against the tent and wept. As he recovered from the trauma, he went through Ben's satchel, searching for whiskey and iodine. Groping blindly, he pulled out a cloth pouch full of heavy rocks. He dumped them onto the bedding and glanced at them half-heartedly. The rocks looked strange. He picked up the magnifying glass next to the bedding and examined, but in his fatigue, struggled to focus. He'd seen their likeness only a few times in his life. Picking up a few, he scattered them in his palm, then compared them with the stone he himself mined. They were gold nuggets. Quickly, he dumped out the contents of the satchel and found six more cloth pouches, all filled with nuggets as large or larger than those in his palm. Gathering all the nuggets except his own, which he pocketed, he lifted himself out of the tent and limped to the edge of the cliff, Two thousand feet below lay the pine forest. He flung the nuggets into the air. They fanned from his hand like rays of light. They disappeared into the pine. He watched the tree line for several minutes, eyes foaming against the crowns, sunlight pressing them warmly. He reached into the pouch to find more gold and discovered a note from Ben. Solinger. I know I won't survive the tunnel. These are for you. Good luck. I knew you'd make it out. Ben, November, 1899. Solinger felt cold. He crumpled the note and plopped to the bedding and buried his face in his hands. Heaving with guilt and anger, he tossed the note into the fire. The heaviness of the death, the shame, the inexperience, the foolishness. Ben had wanted to make lanterns for a living and sell them to lobster fishermen, but Sollinger had convinced him there was no money in the trade and persuaded him to come west to find the gold. Saddling the buckskin, he returned to the mining town with a gold nugget he mined from the claim. Over the years, the mine deteriorated. Once a rumor spread that a man had perished somewhere deep inside, the prospectors in the mining camp did everything they could to avoid the claim believing it to be haunted, they shared the lore of the man who died saving his partner and the gold nugget the lucky or unlucky prospector had carried out. No one in years had ever seen a nugget as large or as pure, like the nuggets from the olden days when prospectors plucked them off the top of the creek bed. Late one summer, a party decided to challenge the haunting The three men approached the entrance with alacrity, believing all that was needed was a smiling nod from above to mine their fortune. The last party hadn't been as successful, but that was because their hearts were bad. This party, however, would do good with the gold they'd find and use it to cure illnesses and feed the poor. But when the lead miner tried to remove a stone from the entrance, he broke his toe. They abandoned the claim that morning. The next year, a three-man party traveled up the mountain to see if they possessed the luck and skill to mine the load. It was their lucky day. All three miners found traces of gold in the creek nearby and then discovered in the dirt a small nugget. This must be from the mine, they said. Their hearts salivated. As they prepared to go in, one of the braces of the adit collar fell on the front miner and paralyzed him. Ten years later, a third party found the tunnel entrance with the fallen brace. Having heard of the curse, they brought with them the best tools available and spent the first month reinforcing the attic collar, far above what was necessary. They believed they'd find the gold because they were cautious, overly cautious. They gathered all the tools they needed and entered. After several paces, the light from the entrance diminished and their hearts beat fast, even with the mining lanterns, just as the darkness of the tunnel began to swallow them. They heard a rumbling. The men dropped their tools and tried to run. Before they could escape, a giant rock fell on the lead miner, crushing his skull. When Solinger returned to the mine, he knew that this time, without deterrence, he would find the mother lode. His appearance so awaited the people. He encountered that they swore a ghost had buried him in a tunnel. First veins traveled through his yellow temples. Wrinkles spread into roundish cheeks from eye sockets. These the small eyes looked like unfinished stone, as if hidden within the earth around him. After investing his gold nugget into the lantern industry, he carried with him the best mining lantern available. His lantern stayed lit far longer with more oil than any mining lantern he owned. Thick brass rods protected the chimney made of tempered glass that wouldn't break even if dropped. In his satchel, he carried a spare lantern as well as a smaller gas lantern easy to light. He also carried a box of matches and a metal canister. The entrance was half-buried with slanting earth. Weeds covered the ground before it. A stone the size of a large cannonball lay against the fallen brace. Yet after so many years, he still recognized the opening. With pickaxe and shovel. He cleared the earth and reinforced the sides and ceiling, then lifted the large rock and set it away. The following morning he walked in. He lit the lantern. The warmth comforted him as in a womb. The feeling of the light. The natural ease of the light. The unburdened strength of the light. The heavy goodness of the light and the hope. At all cost, he desired to claim his identity under the womb of the mountain, and if he returned, before fate discovered him and burped mountain all over him, he'd walk out of the tunnel into the light reborn, fully alive, in love with the light of life. He loved the light that had become his character this day and in the day since the mining accident. He so keenly believed in the mother load that he knew no darkness would ever destroy what he had come to mine. He held the lantern ahead of him. Just then, he met the remains of a corpse. A rock covered where the head should have been. His lantern was smashed as well, the copper casing severely dented by a pointed rock. He continued deeper. The warmth soothed him, and the strength of its warmth filled his eyes and glowed against his skin, and the terrible uh, terrible fear held so long ago in the consuming darkness paled with the softening warmth. A deep peace filled him and his body tingled and glowed and his lungs deepened with the intense pleasure of the warmth of the lantern. He felt the wick and breathed deeply and it filled him and softened him and enriched the mind just to feel the lantern again, just to breathe, just to mind the light with eyes proved he lived. No light is greater felt when an entire earth of darkness is present with the pressure of destruction. A man in a cave loves the gift of light more than one who has never experienced the fear of darkness. A great multitude may bask together in an open field all their lives and never come to appreciate the lantern of the sun so insignificant compared to the overwhelming darkness of space, waiting only with time and pressure until all of Earth is crushed. Solinger deepened with the peace and his lungs expanded, and he gripped the lantern with his hands. His lungs deepened, and he breathed in the palpable light and came to the spot where Ben lay. The breathing thickened, and the peace touched him, and the bones lifted with the eyes. He set the lantern on a flat stone against the side of the mine, ensuring that it was far enough behind him that, it, that he wouldn't harm it as he cleared the rocks. Uh, One rock following another, he removed the detritus, exposing Ben's legs, then his arms, and finally his chest and head. All that was left of him were bones and the coverings that once served as mining clothes. Now they acted as as a burial shroud. In fact, the bones were so well preserved that none of them had broken. Some other way had crushed him, but his bones had not been crushed. His bones had remained intact, even at the greatest crushing, even with the heavy rock denting his skull. Solinger wept. He grabbed the lantern and held it to Ben and wept soundly. The dense weight of the mountain muffled his sobbing. He started to moan but remembered when the mountain fell on him from his voice and covered his mouth with his sleeve. The sobbing flooded from him, and at once, without fear, he wailed. Exhausted, he set the lantern between him and Ben and closed his eyes, feeling the soil mix with his tears, the warm glow of the lantern mixing with his skin and soothing him. He finished clearing the obstruction. As he readied to exhume Ben's bones, however, a fear enveloped him, the same fear he felt when shrouded in perfect darkness. He shivered and pulled his hand to his chest. With sober awareness, he covered up his bones just as he had done so many years before. He returned to the task at hand, the mother load. By the glow of the lantern, he navigated the narrowing, realizing how less narrow it really was. He arrived at the added end, and there just shy of the end of the tunnel lay the shattered lantern. For a long time, he studied its shape, the dirtied remains of the chimney, the flimsy tin. He set his glowing lantern beside it and picked it up and turned it, the dirt falling out from its base where the oil had been stored. The construction was pathetic, to think that such a crude model would ever bring him the gold he desired. What gold was better than the warmth to live? His eyes drifted up to the end of the tunnel, to the vein he had just uncovered the day his oil ran out. With lantern in hand, he examined the find. Large gold nuggets traveled up the vein like buds on a stem. Too many to count glowed in the light of the lantern. He scratched his head. He smiled to himself. Why not share his gold with the people around him? He smiled again and turned away from the vein, gathering the pieces of the shattered lantern, the glass, and dented tin. He placed them all in his satchel. He lifted his lantern to his chest and returned to the light believing, at last, in the promise of discovery.
2: Thanks, Sam, for that short story. Hope to hear more from you in the future. I have a quote here for writers. Asking a working writer what he thinks about critics is like asking a lamppost how it feels about dogs. Christopher Hampton said those wise words. Thanks for
1: joining us.
2: Until next time, happy reading.
1: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, Send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.